Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. Can music change the world? You'd be surprised how often I get asked that question, and even more surprised to learn how disappointed people are when I tell them, no, I don't think it can. Because people really do want music to be able to have the ability to make a difference. It's a bit of a hangover from the 1960s, I suppose, when people did believe that music could change the world. That's partly because music then was the only social medium available to young people. So everything, you know, that they felt strongly about, whether it was love or politics or whatever, the weather, had to be dealt with by music. So obviously politics was in there. But ask yourself this, did Martin Luther King march to Washington in 1963 because Bob Dylan wrote Blowing in the Wind? Or was it the other way around? Let me tell you, it was the other way around. Uh, Always was always will be because music ultimately has no agency it has no way of affecting change but we all know it has a great power because we've all felt it at gigs or when we've listened to music or when we play it so what is that power that it has the power that music has is the power to make you experience emotions that you yourself may not have come in contact with before it also allows you to, to feel for people in situations other than your own. And often, when you're listening to that music, it makes you feel as if the person who wrote the song and the person who's singing the song understands how you feel. And that's because the currency of music is empathy. That's what music is all about. That's what we're dealing with. Whether we're writing political songs like I do sometimes or whether you're just writing love songs, it's all about making you feel for somebody else that you haven't particularly met or encountered or anything like that. So music has that power, the power of empathy, and that's crucial because empathy is the basis of all progressive politics. So it's understandable that knowing that, feeling that, people aspire that music should be able to change things. But the truth is, and I speak from personal experience, the only people with the ability to affect real change at a gig 
are the audience, not the artist. The artist has the ability to, to bring people together, to fire them up, to make them feel as if they're part of something bigger. But ultimately, it's not what happens in the hall that makes a difference. It's what happens when people go away. And, and as an artist, you have a, a, an ability to inspire people, to inspire people to activism. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing a gig and I'm singing a political song and everyone cheers at the end and you know, puts their fists in the air, it charges up my, my activism. When I come off stage, I'm, I'm charged up again um, by the, the, the activism that the audience have reflected back to me. And my, my job is to try and make people go home with that feeling, the same feeling that I have. And, and that's because ultimately the agency that we want music to have, that music isn't capable of generating, that's because agency comes from accountability, being able to hold those in power to account. So if we want to have some say, if we want to have a role in helping to make change happen, then we have to use our platforms that we have to call for the powerful, to be held to account, whether it's in the economy, whether it's in politics, whether it's in relationships. You know, you don't have to be writing, you know, left-wing songs to be asking for accountability. Wherever power is being abused, we have an ability to call it out and to be a focus for our audience to see that they're not alone in feeling outraged at this abuse of power. And I think the reason why it's important that we focus on this is because most of the biggest political movements of the 21st century are kind of, at first, seem to be single-issue campaigns. Black Lives Matter. Me Too. Extinction Rebellion. But what, what they have in common is they are accountability movements. They're trying to hold those in power to account for the the abuse that they feel has been visited on them by those in positions of, of power and responsibility. So if the artist wants to be a catalyst for change, then they need to lend their voice to calls for accountability, whether explicitly in their work or as an, an ally through statements, through social media and other ways, you know. That's how we inspire activism. And the, the crucial thing about that is, is that when you take the empathy that is inherent in all great music and you take activism in the audience and mix those two together, you get solidarity. And solidarity is, and that's what, that's what really starts to bring about change. That's the real catalyst for change. And that's why the, the right is always trying to divide people. That's why Donald Trump's whole shtick is to constantly keep people divided. Because if people start showing solidarity with each other, whether it's at the ballot box or in the workplace or in the streets, then real change will come. Now, music has a role to play in that because music brings people together emotionally, physically, spiritually. And if you introduce calls for accountability, it brings us together politically too. And, and that's the role we have in helping to make change happen. Promoting solidarity in the people that we bring together to hear us perform. That was a recording of Billy Bragg speaking about the power of music. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode five of our podcast, Things Worth Fighting For. I hope wherever you're listening to this, you're doing okay and enjoying a little bit of post-lockdown freedom. 
The reason we made this podcast was because we were inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light onto some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. The sun is well and truly out, but I'm speaking to you today from the dingy depths of Mr. Jet's secret basement studio in Clerkenwell, London. And the theme we're talking about on this episode is the spirit of protest and activism in art and music. When I was in my late teens and very early 20s, I was a sceptic about all sorts of things. Probably like many young people at that age, I was convinced I could sustain an existence outside the bounds of any conventional system. I was inherently suspicious about so many things I mistrusted in the world I saw before me. Fashion, labels, pop music, punk, politics, spirituality, health food, yoga, perceived career success, money, educational institutions. Looking back, I think that was me trying to find my own identity, and it probably came from a place of fear, of not knowing how I'd measure up as a result of not having the necessary experience or perhaps interest. Maybe that's why rejects so often become rebels. Not fitting in calls on us to find our own definition for things. By taking control of our own reality, we're able to prevent other people from screwing around with us. But perhaps the reason I was so repelled by the notion of conforming, or the mainstream, air quotes, was because deep down I was terrified that it would become me. If I adopted the codes of society, I would be complying with conventionality, thus robbing myself of my individuality, which at that age is everything, as defined by the colour of your hair, your record collection, the posters on your wall, or the slogans lovingly carved into your pencil case. At that age, your responsibilities appear to be to yourself and your newfound right to express your personal freedom. Freedom in what you have to say, who you answer to, and what time you get out of bed in the morning or the afternoon. But then at a certain point, life starts happening to both you and those around you. Births, deaths, weddings, funerals, and you realise, surprise, surprise, that maybe you aren't the most important thing on the planet. Actually, some people never do, but we'll assume they're not listening to this. And slowly you see that this so-called freedom is a tentative thing which we each define differently. You might become interested in who's running for leadership where you live, and if they're listening to you in making sure your relatives receive the health care they need as they get older, how your lifestyle impacts the environment and how your taxes are being spent. Because if you ignore all these things, how free are you really? And with that realisation comes the recognition that navigating the world as a singular entity might not be the answer after all. Because by working together, we can lift each other up and help implement meaningful change. Ultimately, the reason it feels good to help is because it gives us a greater purpose. To use our privilege to lend a hand to those who don't have our good fortune. To support others, allowing them to feel seen and heard. Activism, to me, is about the coming together of people from different backgrounds to make the society we live in a fairer place for everybody. A large proportion of the time, movements spring up out of social injustices with the purpose of holding our governments to account. But as citizens, we're each also part of that society and therefore have to ask what we can individually do to help. Something about protest culture which has always fascinated me is how historically art has been a powerful tool in putting forward strong messages. Yes, protest can sometimes turn ugly, but it can also be beautiful, funny and poetic. Take, for example, the art risings against President Yanukovych in Kiev in 2013. 
Ukrainian women gathered with their daughters in the streets and held up mirrors, forcing riot police with shields to confront the brutality of their own image. To begin with, the policemen were instructed to avoid all eye contact, but by the end of the week, many had deferred to the side of the protesters. Or when residents in the provincial German town of Wunsiedel sponsored the 2014 annual neo-Nazi rally through the town by offering 10 euros for every metre they marched. What the locals didn't tell the demonstrators was that the 10,000 euros eventually raised would be paid over to Exit Deutschland, an anti-fascist organisation specifically set up to reintegrate the alt-right back into German society. Or when in 2010, the Chinese authorities ordered for the studio belonging to controversial fine artist and political dissident Ai Weiwei to be demolished on the grounds of improper planning procedures. In response, the artist organised a celebratory last supper, serving a menu consisting of 10,000 river crabs, chosen for the resemblance the name bears to the word harmonisation, which in turn is a common synonym for censorship. Although Weiwei was eventually incarcerated, the river crabs have since been cast in porcelain and have been shown in many of the world's most prestigious art galleries to several million people. Another tradition by which people have called for social change is through the art form of the protest song. Writing a protest song is not something that artists do lightly, and there's always risks of alienating part of your audience, losing airplay, or in some cases getting in trouble with the state. But the way I see it, there's got to be more to being an artist than just making records and selling t-shirts. I think music has a rare ability to cradle our fears and make us feel less alone. To guide us, surprise us, to make us think, weep, love and lust. Music can offer us solace when times are tough. The thing about how modern society is structured is that a lot of the time we exist in our little bubbles, defined by our subcultures, our political persuasions, our religious ideologies, our ethnicity, sexuality, peer groups, class or status. Well, the thing about music is that it can burst all these bubbles by bringing us together and telling stories which invite us to question our perception of the world around us. Many of the most important artists in my musical upbringing, from Radiohead to Pink Floyd to Neil Young to PJ Harvey, Dylan to Bob Marley to Nina Simone, made works which still stand as fascinating documents of the geopolitical landscape during the times they were living in. History books can teach us about the social context of a particular time, but music, art and literature have an innate ability to paint the feeling of a time. If you want to hear what it felt like to be a black woman living in segregated Harlem in the late 1930s, with lynchings still a terrifying occurrence in the South, listen to Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. If you'd like to taste what it felt like living in the multicultural Midlands in Thatcherite Britain, listen to the special's debut album on Two-Tone from 1979. Or just watch back Stormzy's set from Glastonbury in 2019 proudly wearing the black Union Jack stab vest made for him by Banksy, a striking comment on Britain's knife crime crisis and the racial inequality in the criminal justice system. On our new album, A Billion Heartbeats, we've explored the art form of the protest song in various directions, and the idea for one of those songs came from a trip to Cuba in November 2017 after playing a festival in Mexico City. One evening, my girlfriend at the time and I made a fire on a remote beach and sat around it with a young German traveller we'd met earlier that day. 
We spent the evening discussing the dire state of the world and eventually I brought out my guitar. Yeah, I know, I was that guy, sorry. Although our new friend only knew a few chords, he played us some folk songs, which somehow perfectly communicated the feeling we shared. But whereas talking had lowered the mood, the music lifted us up. When I got home, I recalled the experience to my dad and writing partner, Henry, and it inspired the lyrics to what became Campfire Song. It's partly an autobiographical song about my journey in activism, but also hopefully touches on something more universal, about holding on to a feeling which I like to call the fighter's spirit, not allowing your flame to be extinguished, even when times get hard and a cold wind blows around you. You'll get a chance to hear the album version of that song at the end of this podcast. In case you've not looked at social media for the past couple of weeks, and I fully empathise if you haven't, last weekend would have been the 50th anniversary of the Glastonbury Festival. My first visit to the healing fields of Avalon was when I was 15 years old, the same year David Bowie headlined the Sunday night. As anyone who's been to that magical place will know, part of you never leaves. 2020 would have been our fifth time playing there, this time on the left field stage, affectionately known as the corner of the festival where pop and politics meet. We're unbelievably thankful to have the man in charge of organising that stage, along with his wife Juliet, for providing us with the opening thought on this week's episode of Things Worth Fighting For. The bard of barking himself, Mr Billy Bragg. Known by many as the punk poet laureate of protest, Billy often cites the Rock Against Racism movement and the Clash's infamous 1978 concert in Victoria Park as being a wake-up call as a young boy growing up in Essex. Initially starting out as a busker on the streets of London, a bizarre encounter with the legendary DJ John Peel involving a mushroom biryani secured him his first radio play, eventually leading on to a career lasting over four decades, penning highly charged political protest songs about war, fascism, labour unions and Margaret Thatcher's neoliberal agenda. And of course, some of the most beautiful love songs ever written. For my band, it was a New England from his flawless 1983 debut, Life's a Riot with Spy vs Spy, which brought him into our ears and hearts. The first time I heard it was at one of our Real Pie Island parties back in the mid-2000s, when our old pal Jamie T covered it on his bass guitar, and I was immediately transfixed. Billy has effortlessly achieved something so many songwriters, both before and after him, have tried to do. To marry the personal with the political and I want to thank him for recording his thoughts, especially for the podcast. It's a huge honour to have him on. Another artist whose music has shaped the landscape of activism and politics and music is the person I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For needs little introduction. Forming the Oxford band on a Friday with his Abingdon schoolmates Tom, Phil, Johnny and Colin way back in 1985, the band that would become Radiohead have gone on to sell over 30 million albums, receive countless Grammys and Brits, be nominated for the Mercury Prize more times than any other artist and in 2019 were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ed O'Brien. In his career with the band, Ed has helped redefine how music is consumed in the digital age. 
Without the influence of his records like OK Computer, Kid A or In Rainbows, many of the artists around today, my own band included, quite possibly wouldn't be here. Since our chat happened during lockdown, Ed spoke with me from his home in the North Wales countryside, the week following the release of his brilliant debut solo album, Earth, back in May, and it was a great conversation. We talked about both attending the 2003 anti-Iraq war march in London, the social significance of rave culture, and what it means to find your tribe. Ed kindly recorded his end of the chat, which is lucky because my internet signal was behaving very badly that afternoon. So thanks, Ed. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll meet you on the other side. First off, just thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. I'm, I'm sure you've got so much on at the moment. Well, uh, not really. <laughs> not really. It's a pleasure, Blaine. I met, um, I met William at Glastonbury, uh, I think about four years ago. And it was a, it was a lovely moment meeting him. A great, great meeting of minds. It was really, it was really good. And I obviously... You know, you guys are on my radar and I know you've got a new album out, which I'm sorry to admit, I'll straight, I haven't listened to it yet because I've, because I've not been into listening to music, to be frank. I'm not, it's this weird period I'm in at the moment. I just can't, there are, only, there are very few things that I can listen to and I don't understand why. But, um, you know, I know you guys, are, you guys are doing great stuff. So congratulations on the release of your record. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I don't know how it feels for you, but certainly for us, I think putting out an album at this time, one of the things that I really miss is that that opportunity to play songs live for the first time at that very sort of embryonic stage in front of an audience. And I mean, I know you've played a handful of shows for this record, haven't you? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit, probably a little bit different for me, for you. I know that that impulse that you have as a band when you've been in the studio and you want to bring out your material. With me, it's a little bit different because it's also new. So it's also the whole live experience. I've really enjoyed it, but it's also been massively out of my comfort zone. It's just me getting my head around singing live. That's been the hardest thing for me. You know, I, what I did know was that I knew that I needed to do it a lot. You know, I think as a band, you'll know this, and as a musician, mm. you get better the more you do it. Absolutely. And particularly in the early stages, there's a massive, you know, the first 100, 200 shows that a band do, does is, is all musicians do. It's one of enormous growth. So I was excited, but I was also really nervous about the whole thing. So, which is different from a radio thing I recognise, which is more about, yeah, come on, let's go out and do it. Yeah. I mean, so, because it's an incredible, like, cast of musical ears and players on the record as well, isn't it? Yeah, I was, I think, you know, people have asked me about it, and I, I think just my, my honest response is it's always honest, try to be as honest as possible, is I just wanted to work with who I considered were the best. And mm. that started with Flood and Catherine Marks as the production team, and that went through David Akumu, Nathan East, Omar Hakim, Laura Marling, Adrian Atley, Glenn Kochi. They're all supremos. And I'm, I'm fortunate, I guess, that I've un I understand that, you know, having been in Radiohead this song, one of the reasons I think that we make good records or we've done good stuff or whatever you want to call it, is because the musicianship is really great and, and the people are great. So when I was sort of 
thinking, dreaming this all up, I started, I really started thinking big and Omar and Nathan, and I was just like, well, why not ask them? Um, Because I knew that what I was trying to do required that level of musicianship. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Omar, like the the records that guy's played on is just insane, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary, and I mean, for me, I, I think it was about, I think it was about three months before we were going flying out. No, it was only a couple of months before, so we started recording. Was recording with Omar, Nathan, and David in October 2017, and two months before that, I was on a plane and uh, flying out EasyJet to to one of the Greek islands for summer holiday with the family. Yeah. And I had a Spotify, I had a playlist, and I don't know why, but I put on Let's Dance on there for some reason. And I remember hearing it and going, oh my God, that's Omar Hakim, and I'm going to be playing with him in two months' time. So, yeah, he's, him and Nathan have, as David says, David Akimi says, it was just, you know, the, 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 the lunch breaks and the, the, the meal breaks were great to hear the stories and to hear the, just the amount of people they're playing with and they're talking about you know, Maurice White from Earth, Wind and Fire and all these cats that they know. So, it, and, and they played with. So it was, it was, it, it, it's an amazing, it was an amazing experience. And they come from, you know, there's probably, there's a lot more common ground between, say, you and me and our bands. But with someone like Omar and Nathan, you know, Nathan gets plucked out as a 16-year-old to go on the road with Barry White. Barry White recognises something in him you know, back in the 70s. So wow. these guys have played with almost like this other world of stellar musicians, Quincy Jones, all these people who I revere. They're the, they're the kind of like the Nile Rogers. They're the Buddhas and the sages of our, of our music industry. So they're, they're the people that I sort of revere. I guess because it's also the most unfamiliar, but they're the people I revere the most. And so it was amazing to play with them. And also, you know, you, to know that actually you can do good stuff with them. It's not like, because it was definitely a meeting of these worlds, you know, the, the, the place that Flood and I come from yeah. and the place where Omar and Nathan are. And David was really important because he sort of spans, he can, he can sort of, because of his history of jazz and playing with Grace Jones and stuff, he stepped into that world a bit, but Flood and I don't think really have. So it was this really kind of, it was a really, it was, it was the unknown, but it felt really good. I think all, all of us really learned from, from it. Yeah, that's amazing. And so what did Catherine Marks bring to the mix? Because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of her. I think she's just brilliant. Yeah. She, first of all, she's a stellar engineer. You know, Alan and Flood will say that, you know, because they have this apprentice, not apprentice, but they, yeah, they do. They sort of train up engineers or at Salt and Battery in Wilston at their studio. Yeah. And it's a very old-fashioned scheme. And she, Catherine, Flood tells the story, Catherine was an architect student. And, you know, she did her architecture course and then she completely started again. She wanted to get into music. So Alan will say she's the, she's the best engineer that they've trained up, that they've had there. So she's incredibly good at what she does. But I was also very keen. I think one of the things that sort of pulled me in was, and one of the reasons I wanted her was because... She, Alan, Floods, the last time they worked together was on Foles, Holy Fire. Okay, yeah. And I love that record. Yeah. You know, I love the energy of that record. I, you know, I love Foles. I love what they do. Um, but I think what I recognised in that was that the sound of that record was 
was first of all stellar, but they did that that thing that they captured the energy of the band and the performances. Yeah. And then also was were able to add the production on top. And that's what they do. I think so many times, you know, and I'm lucky because I come from this, you know, from Radiohead and this kind of background of Sonics that I'm, the bar is very high with me and Sonics. I'm, I'm like, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a snob, but I'm, <laughs> I know what I like. Yeah. And to me, it's got to be that perfect that it's got to be it's got to be a combination if you don't have if you've just got sonics and you haven't got performance you haven't got it if you've got performance without sonics that's kind of the least you should have but what i want to is performance and sonics and and that's what catherine and flood do and they they hadn't worked together since holy fire and catherine actually had engineered holy fire so she was more on a you know on a co-producer um and so i mean the, the problem what happened with the album is it went on a long time really had stuff so she, she had a lot of work she had to do so she was with us basically the first and the first five months and then she sort of went off and did other projects but she would check in and we'd check in with her and it was good because you know it was important someone coming with fresh ears and she would kind of she gave it the big thumbs up and stuff like that or not but invariably she did so yeah I was I and the other thing I was interested in was, and she, you know, this wasn't relevant for her, but I'm interested in, and I spoke to Laura Marling about this, about the female energy, having female energy in the creative process. Yes. Because, you know, my experience of radio is a very, very male environment. I mean, yeah. we're not alpha males, but it's everybody we work with, apart from one person in the office, and maybe our age, but you know, everyone in the in the studio, it's male. Yeah. And I'm very bored of that. I feel like, and I spoke to Laura about this, there's I'm interested in that balance because I think too many males in the studio can often it can be I don't know, it can get a little bit I don't know what's it just gets too male. It's just too and I and I, I sort I grew up when my parents split I grew up with, with my sister and my mum, so that kind of balance has always been very important to me. And you know, I think that's where the potential for even greater music, greater art is is by taking it out of that all male thing and putting it and finding a balance or even, you know, more feminine energy. But I'm really, really, I'm curious and I'm interested because it's something I feel quite strongly about. I think it will make the creative process greater. Absolutely. So Laura made an amazing podcast, I think it was two or three years ago, called Reversal of the Muse. Um, I don't know if she talked to you about that, but she she speaks to CJ Marks on that and she even speaks to, I mean, I think she speaks to Dolly Parton on there, Emmylou Harris. And it's all very much to do with exploring this idea of the recording studio as being a male space essentially and you know she talks about the carpets are always grey and there's never flowers you know and how that actually has an effect on the music that comes out of those spaces that they're not inclusive that they are traditionally part of this sort of patriarchal construct of the music industry and and how it's time for all that to change you know yeah I haven't heard it but I did talk to her she said she'd interviewed Catherine and I totally agree with her. I mean, it's funny you should, you should, she should mention, like, the carpets are grey. When I look back on that time, you know, I look back on it as being really grey, actually. I feel it's, like, very two-dimensional. It was very white. 
you know, especially in this country, the whole Britpop thing, I, I just think it was just, it was just boring and it was, it was full of its own self-importance and, you know, obviously there are a few good tunes. I don't look back on it with any kind of rose-tinted spectacles and also the industry, the industry was, you know, there were a few women in the industry, but it was, and we were lucky, we worked with some amazing women, Kathy at Hall or Nothing, which was run by Terry Hall, uh, the wife of, you know, Philip Paul, who died, who did our press, and Mandy Plum, who did, our, did all, was head of our marketing and stuff at Parlophone. Mm. But it was, it was a male industry, and it's just, it's, it's boring, and I, it's not good for the art, it's not good for music. And this is something that needs to, that there needs to be a balance, and I, I think once we find that, and it's interesting, because I've sort of come back in, now, you know, my album, I've got a new deal, and I'm with a record company who I was with, 25 years ago, Capital. And it's a very different energy, and I'm finding, I mean, there's, you know, they, they have, there's a big thing in Capital about, and they told me when I had the initial meetings, you know, 50% of the workforce are female, they've got a lot at executive level. And it was interesting me walking into the, like, that iconic tower. I hadn't been in for 20 years, and I remember it as being, you know, there were, we had some friends there, but on the whole, it was a bit of a, again, a patriarchal dick swinging. Yeah. You know, it was just, it just didn't feel nice. Yeah. I walked in this time and I was like, whoa, this feels really different. And, you know, as musicians, I think we're kind of quite sensitive to energies and all that stuff. And the energy in the building was just different. So, um, obviously, by their own admission, they know that there's room, for, you know, massive room for improvement. But it's not just important for music, it's important for the world. I think one of the, one of the crises that we find ourselves in, you know, the system we've got is very aggressive, yeah. uh, dog-eat-dog, first-past-the-post, the, 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 you know, you rise to... It's very male. It's such a male patriarchal trait, isn't it? And it's, it's particularly a young male trait. It's like you recognise it when, you know, from your age 16 through to about, I don't know, about 40. That's a classic male trait. And actually, it's bullshit and it's not, it's, it's very, it's very blinkered, it's very two-dimensional. So my whole thing is, it's not just music, but this is one of the, the key things. If we're going to move forward as a, as a species, there has to be a genuine balancing of the male and the female. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, some of my favourite records of the last couple of years Way's Blood Angel Olsen they've been female artists and I think yeah. it feels like we're on the crest of something very very exciting in terms of equal representation and of addressing that balance that you're talking about not just in at street level in society but I think in positions of power as well no I agree sorry my favorite record of last year were there too is Michael Kiwanuka but really Little Sims Grey Area Okay, yeah. And that, for me, again, a, a black female British artist, that's why I think it's so exciting, because you've got that going on, but you've also got this kind of... The whole thing with what Grime has done is, you know, put black British artists as well on, in, in the mainstream in a way that it's never happened before, because, you know, it was mainly American before. That, that, for me, is why that kind of... Why it feels exciting is you've got it's a lot more representative of, of, of our nation. Whereas that's why I hark back to like the 90s as being very three-dimensional, two, two-dimensional, not three-dimensional at all. So yeah, I, I, um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the willingness of, you know, festivals like Glastonbury to, to have 
50% better billing is, is fantastic. It's what, it's what we need. Absolutely. And I think it was, was it last year when Stormzy headlined the Saturday, I think it was. It, that really did feel like a huge cultural shift. You know, it felt actually sort of 20 years later than it should have been. But I, I know how important Glastonbury is to you and also, you know, to, to Radiohead as a band. And I think just seeing the demographic change over the years has actually been incredibly inspiring, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that so it was a Friday night, wasn't that Stormzy played? It was like a massive, it was a massive moment in British pop culture, if you like, or music culture. It's the kind of the white, suddenly Stormzy goes into widescreen in this country. You know, he's gone, he's, he's come from this scene. He's such a great role model. And yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think, I think Emily and Nick, uh, Emily Evis and Nick Glastonbury, they, they're, they're very humble, but they're also very aware of the importance, the cultural importance of the festival that they curate. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting just talking about grime because, you know, Radiohead are a band who have been so instrumental in engaging with the politics of the last 30 years. And it very much strikes me that grime is, is the political music of now. It's the punk of now. It's engaging with the state of the world with society in a way that perhaps, you know, in the late 70s and the early 80s, guitar music was. But I feel like so much guitar music is, is polite now or, or kind of too wrapped up in itself, whereas grime does feel like it's providing such a, such a needed social commentary on this age that we've been living in. That's the thing about grime is it's, it's very real. It comes from an authentic place, whereas, you know, maybe guitar music and stuff has, it's just become, I don't know what it's become. I've, I think it's, I guess that, that for me, the last political movement, I mean, you had punk, but actually my political movement was Acid House. Mm. And Acid House was, was, you know, the second summer of love. So there was a kind of, have you seen... Um, the Jeremy Della film on Acid House. The, the, it's, the, the, it's so funny you mention that because that was one of the things I wanted to speak to you about. You know, I, 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 yeah. think there's, I think there's some traces of rave culture and Acid House on the record. I mean, I'm thinking about maybe Olympic in particular, which is, I think, made my favourite track. I just, I absolutely love that. And I, I have seen that documentary where he's got the, he gets out the 808s and the 303s yeah. and he encourages the kids to make some beats and... I found it incredibly inspiring and, and also educational in the sense that he's exploring the political context from which rave yeah. culture came. And that's something I hadn't really thought about in that much depth before. Well, you're probably, you know, you, that's right. And you're probably quite... And I don't think people contextualised it in a way that, you know, it's always with, with a few years under your belt that you can actually contextualise it and, and try and frame it. It was interesting because I was at Manchester University. Uh, I went in 1987. Of course, the second summer of love really hit, well, it's 88 and 89. And really, really, I mean, I think it was really the summer of 89 coming back to Manchester. And it was like, what has happened here? Haven't been away for the summer. And it was, it was, uh, it was transformative. It was, it was huge. And what was nice about it, what, what resonated with me and a lot of people that I knew was, you know, 
punk wasn't ours. Punk was really necessary and it was brilliant. Um, and, you know, I was lucky because I sort of, you know, I, I was too young for punk, but I, the post-punk, I benefited from the whole post-punk bands and Banshees and Smiths and, you know, the Bunnymen and all these bands who came out of that kind of art house, uh, art school, post-punk thing. Yeah. But the thing about it was, the thing that I never felt comfortable about it was it was very competitive and I totally get it, but I'm not a competitive person. And for me, what I loved about rave culture was suddenly it's that tribal thing, it's we are one. Yeah. And, and, and it, was, it was, you know, rather than a fight in the nightclub, it was an arm around you, where are you from brother, where are you from sister? And that to me was, was I, th- I think that was such a profoundly massively important you know moment in culture yes. and you know look at it musically as well like it's EDM is now it, it's, it's the pop and if you could say that comes from Acid House which came from you know these pioneers in Detroit and Chicago but yeah it was, it was you know the grey the grey 80s the, 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 the combative 80s were you know the minor strike all these things and Acid House came, and sort of helped us move forward. I guess the thing about the 90s was that there was an optimism. You know, the Berlin Wall had come down. There was like, okay, well, maybe we can all, you know, because much of my childhood, the threat of the the nuclear war was was very real when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. I remember having a history lesson. And, you know, we thought we had a, you know, a fairly trigger-happy president over the water in Ronald Reagan. And there were serious conversations about... You know, what would we do getting under the table? You know, and we lived in Oxfordshire near a... There were a lot of um, uh, RAF and there was a, a, a USAF base called Upper Hayford where they flew these F-111 bomber fighters from. So we were, in a, we were in a spot and I remember having conversations with my parents. It's like, what would we do? And they would say, well, what we'll do is we'll drive to Wales and, or we'll try and get to Ireland, you know. And, all, and this was a very real thing. And then all this crumbled literally in I think what was the Berlin Wall was the beginning of 89 yeah. and then this emerging music scene and it, it, it was massive it, was, it, it changed everything what I still love and I still get off on is that whole tribal element of, of dance music and you know like Shangri-La in, in, in Glastonbury four o'clock in the morning or <laughs> in some you know in some parallel universe I, I love that it, to me that feels very very primal I, there's something very, very powerful about it. It feels like we're, we're, it's almost like it's, you're rooting to something that's very, very old there. Absolutely. And I think, I think Acid House tapped into that. Hi there. This is the bit in the podcast where you might normally hear an advert for something. But instead of telling you about ZipRecruiter or weird mail-order ready meals, I want to tell you about a great book called Drunk Folk Stories by my old mate Jay McAllister a.k.a. Beans on Toast. Drunk Folk Stories is a collection of 10 short true-life stories about songwriting, travelling and drinking, told through the eyes of one of England's most loved travelling troubadours, featuring the likes of Billy Bragg, Banksy, Glastonbury and the Cookie Monster. 1997 and I was 16 years old. When Radiohead announced their headline slot, 
That was it. I'd never seen or heard anything like it. There were people everywhere, music everywhere, magic everywhere. It was incredibly chaotic, but at the same time, it had this incredible flow and feeling to it. It felt safe and dangerous, mystical and modern. It was fucking Glastonbury. The first ever Beans on Toast gig was at Glastonbury. One of the main things that influenced them new songs that I'd written was Billy Bragg's performance in the left field tent the year before. It was the first time I saw how music and politics were intertwined and how important it is for us to question those in charge. Stupidly, I stayed up all night doing cheap speed and ended up playing a pretty crappy show. After that first gig on the left field stage, I've been lucky enough to get booked at Glastonbury every year. And that includes the year I wrote Can't Get a Gig at Glastonbury. I've battled power cuts in hell, had Brexit breakfasts at Greenpeace. I've gone down the rabbit hole, sung on the bandstand. I've bimbled in, bimbled out. I've watched the morning sunrise over the stone circle. And I still love to walk around a festival alone. Who goes to a festival alone? I do. That was an extract from the audiobook of Drunk Folk Stories, read by Beans on Toast himself. Links in the show notes for where to download or buy your copy. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Ed O'Brien. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I completely relate to that. There's something about that far corner of that field that there's things that happen to you on your journey there. I mean, for a start, you know, like you bump into people like you were talking about bumping into Will, you know, from the band. And yeah. it's it's an incredible journey. And I think it's there's something that draws us to that energy and to that spirit that we kind of keep on going back and back to. Um, and I don't mean just musicians. I mean, just as people. And I know you've talked about this feeling of finding your tribe, finding your people. Mm. And it's in those kind of places that you can that you can feel that energy. Um, yeah, and I think that energy is really on your record. I think it's, it's, it, it permeates the record, you know? Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, I'm thankful you recognise it because that for me, that was, the, that was the key thing. It's like, how do you kind of bottle that energy? That was the most important thing because if you, I was like, if I don't have that emotion and that energy, 
I can't get across what I'm trying to do. I can't, you know, the lyrics won't make sense. The lyrics will sound trite. It's like, you know, lyrically, I'm not Bob Dylan. I'm starting on a journey. So where did I, I realized my inspiration for lyrics is actually in gospel and in soul. And a lot of that, you know, if you want to sort of distill the message of gospel or soul, a lot of it is like, coming out of the darkness into the light mm. or, you know, and that's my journey and that's what I wanted to emote and that's what I wanted to communicate. I, it was very visual, it was very tangible to me. And if I didn't have that feeling in the music, then those lyrics wouldn't make sense. It's a weird thing, isn't it, when you make a record and you'll know this, like, you're trying to say like on a Friday afternoon, five o'clock in February and you're in Northwest London and Wilston, you're trying to you're trying to feel and trying to make music about what it means to be sort of expansive and open-hearted and be at one with your tribe and almost this kind of cosmic dance and you're, you know, you, yeah. the juxtaposition or the situation that you find yourself in is like pissing down with rain. In a, a grey-carpeted room. <laughs> you're in a grey-carpeted room. You're surrounded by lovely people, but you're retired yes. as well. So how do, you, how do you get that? How do you, maybe rather than... Staying at the at the coal face of of music, so feeling like you have to go in all the time and do it and do it and do it. Which there's a certain amount of truth you have to. Do. Maybe you should be more select and pick your moments and go. Okay, I'm going to do three weeks in May, or I'm going to shut this down for the winter, or I'm going to do like two weeks somewhere. But Neil Young does this thing like he's he's apparently he's. I read this interview with Daniel Lanois, who said that he's got his recording situation down that he records. Uh, I think about the three or four nights or, the, or maybe even the two nights around the full moon because he has figured that's when he's done his best recording. So he's, again, he's kind of refracted it down to two nights of the, of the lunar month that I he actually that. records, which is, you know, respect. Yeah, that's but the maybe, most Neil Young thing I've ever heard. But maybe here's the other thing. Maybe the bigger picture is you have to, maybe that is the case. He's done all his best work around that time, but maybe you have to work some of the other time in order to get that great work coming through. I don't know. I'm a real believer in like, actually one of the things of the creative process is, you know, it's not just the stuff that's great in inverted commas. It's everything. And in order for stuff to be great, you have to go through, you know, you have to apply yourself and you also have to go through stuff that isn't great. It's, you, do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's funny you you mentioned Neil Young because something which really strikes me about the record is that the emotional core of the record feels like it's the acoustic guitar. I don't know if I'm right in saying mm. that, but it feels like it's a thread that really runs through the record is these very beautiful, very intimate acoustic guitar moments. And then there's obviously the much more blissed out, dreamy moments and, and pulsing moments on the record as well. But the the acoustic feels like a bit of a thread through the record. And it's interesting because that's not something that I think people would necessarily associate with you and what your role's been in Radiohead, for mm. example. Yeah, I mean, it would be true. I mean, I don't think I've ever played... I think I might... Have I played... No, I, I played acoustic twice in the Radiohead canon. The, all the acoustic guitars on Jigsaw at the end, all the kind of layered Jigsaw falling into place. And then Nice Dream, we did a... You know, on the bends, I think, when we... When, we did a, John Leckie recorded, recorded all five of us playing acoustics on Nice Dream uh, outside 
uh, in the Oxfordshire countryside one blissful summer's afternoon. So, yeah, you're right. But for me, the acoustic guitar was... It was the thing that I, instinct, I intuitively felt I wanted to pick up. That was the thing I wanted to pick up. And I had to actually get to that point because, I, you know, I started off with a laptop, essentially thinking that I'd make a kind of an electronic album because, because I felt that that's where I should be. That was where, you know, if you're going to be on the, you know, if you're going to be on the, 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 the front line of sonic experimentation and sonic adventure, which, sure. you know, feels like a, a not a fam- yeah, it feels like a familiar or the place that I should be, yeah. um, given where we're, you know, coming from Radiohead. But I very quickly, after six weeks of nothing really grabbing me, you know, I did these, these doodles, but I realised that actually, it was actually really good because I realised I don't like working with a computer I don't like recording myself on Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. I don't like using Ableton Live. I don't, I just don't like it. I don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And that's just me. And I wish I did because, you know, so many people do great stuff on this. And it's just, I don't get anything back. And what I do get back is picking up a guitar or picking up an instrument, making a sound and someone else recording me. If I'm going to get to a place where I'm going to do it, and, and perform, I have to not have an engineer's head or, or that kind of technical thing on. I just have to be in a different space. And I wish I could, because it would be a lot easier if I could do both. Um, but I just realised that it's not, what I could, it's not what I do. So my home is in Wales. This is where I'm happiest. Mm-hmm. And there's something about this slightly remote wild corner of Wales that is very rooted in where you can feel the ages you can feel you can feel the, the shadows of the past it's, it's, it, and, and nature is all powerful and, and you can sort of feel folk music I, I, I'm, I'm more my senses are heightened to things like poetry and to folk music and, and almost I think it's, it's, it's interesting because this, this part of Wales I am Robert Plant has a house on the other side of the mountain. Wow. He grew up in Wolverhampton and, you know, coming from a West Midlands family, they would come to the sea, they would come to the coast, out to Mid Wales. That was sort of the nearest place. Yeah. And he loved it and he bought this place apparently in 1970, this kind of up in the, up in the hills and the mountains. And him and Jimmy Page wrote a lot of, uh, a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff, particularly three and four. Okay. And what's interesting is I've never been a huge Led Zeppelin fan. It was, you know, growing up for me, like I said, I was into the post-punk thing. We were very, very tribal. Mm. So I never heard Led Zeppelin until I was 25, 26. Literally didn't hear an album by them. And it was funny coming out here like the last seven years and, and suddenly like it resonates in a way, in particular the folkier aspects. I'm thinking of stuff like the Battle of Evermore. Yes, um, yeah. And, and, and it's almost like it comes out of the ground and it, it's, it's like it's, it's very tangible. And so I was very influenced by that and I kind of, it was very natural to pick up a, a, an acoustic guitar and I wanted these very simple, stripped down songs juxtaposed to, you know, something that was more kind of like the cosmic disco of for me, it was very, it's, it's all about the macro and the micro and kind of 
coming out and in, like, you know, it, a song like Olympic in my head, music becomes very visual for me when it's in focus. So a song like Olympic is, it's, it's almost like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're out there in the, in the stratosphere and you're flying over this incredibly beautiful country and you're sort of, of this world and you're, you know, it's very visible. Whereas, you know, a song like Brazil, for instance, has both of those. And so the start of it, it's very, it's very, it's very, it's very rural. It's, it's like, it's in a field. It's, it's some guys singing almost like a folk song in a field. Yeah. And yeah. then in the middle bit is almost like it goes into, I'm mean, not that I've done it, but friends who've done DMT say, it becomes like you go out the top of your head and you zoom out. And that to me was the, 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 the visual. It's like I wanted to start in this very kind of small, uh, very bucolic rural scene, this song, this sort of this melancholy, and then to, to, to come out to, you know, and the, the cosmic perspective, you know, the cosmic perspective of the song. So it was all about the record for me was the cosmic perspective, but it was also the here and now and what it feels like to be in touch with your feelings and, you know, the intimacy of that. And I think the countryside and being in the countryside really certainly helps me to, 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 to do that. Absolutely. It's, it, yeah, I mean, that track is so vivid. You, and what you're describing, I think, is so clear from that sort of um, being transported from, as you said, this kind of very bucolic, intimate countryside Welsh setting that's it's funny because that's the imagery that I could really see listening to the track and then suddenly that kind of carnival kick starts coming in and you become transported into this trance like state almost and what's interesting is that for people who haven't seen the video the video is an incredible exploration of that and with some like mind-blowing CGI in it as well how how did that like what 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 was um what was the vision behind the video? What were you trying to communicate? They sent out the songs to a load of directors and there were some fantastic treatments that came back. But the one that I totally locked into was, was Andrew's and uh, Andrew Donahoe. And he had basically written this tri- treatment. It was, was kind of almost as is, as it was. It was a cosmic dance. But, and we had a conversation and basically... I think the only thing that, that we shifted from, I, I was, I, my, my, my only thing was that like, I love what you're doing here, but I think what we need to do, I didn't want it to be, you know, because it's almost like this cosmic event happens and, and the planet changes. Mm. I didn't want it to be at all sinister or ominous yeah. or scary, for want of a better word. I wanted it to be joyful and this idea that, you know, that maybe this cosmic event happens this, what he, he called this gloam takes over you know comes and, and, and surrounds the earth and it changes it changes humanity forever mm. and I wanted it to be for me I was just like it has to it has to be a joyful thing and it has to be something that people you know but, but obviously when something like this happens at first these big events like the, the pandemic that we're going yes. through they're, yep. they're, they're, they can be traumatising but I wanted that mm that very quickly to be established that was something of beauty and actually, you know, after the initial kind of fear of what is this, what are, what's happening here, that the energy is one of beauty and of love and of, of, of connection and oneness. So, I, I don't know if you're, a, if you're a Rupert Sheldrake man, but there's, there's a wonderful moment in the video where the characters' bodies sort of morph into these 
almost strands of DNA and you really yeah. get that sense of kind of morphic resonance and that's kind of what it communicated to me I'd say definitely was this sense of our interconnectedness yeah that's great it's funny the book that I'm reading at the moment Sheldrake is referenced a lot and I've never read anything by him but it's the name that keeps popping up in the last five years what what have you what have you read by or how did how have you come across him well, I've, I've, I suppose he's sort of come into my world via Cosmo, his son. So Cosmo played on our last record. Ah. And he's, he's a really wonderful musician. He makes this kind of quite hypnotic, tribal, folk. It's, it's hard to sort of attach labels to it. But he makes this really, really captivating music. And it was really through him that I sort of got to explore some of his, some of his dad's work. It's funny you're talking about the pandemic because something that really strikes me is that out of this, you know, completely unforeseen, incredibly tragic world event, actually something that it's perhaps brought to us is a reminder of how important connection is and how much we really do need each other. And it's almost like, you know, the the machinery of the sort of global capitalist system that we all are cogs in to to an extent once that machinery all shuts down we're really reminded of what's truly important and i think it is human connection isn't it yeah it really is and that's the key you know no one gives a fuck about you know when you're in that point of of crisis or and i always think this other thing and it's not a macabre thing on your deathbed you're not going to think about the things that you bought on Amazon or whether you can fly off and have that holiday. You're going to think about the love that you have for your family and your friends and this planet and all the beautiful things that you're going to miss, like the birds, like the, like nature. Those are the things that really resonate. And I, I think you're right. I mean, it's a really hard thing to talk about in terms of, because obviously it's, there's, there's so much trauma and people are having such a hard time and I you know I've had the the virus but I I count myself as very very lucky you know I'm incredibly fortunate to be out here in the countryside and you know to not be you know on on the on the eighth floor of a of a of a tower block uh with nowhere to go outside and you know but you know so it's really hard to talk about the silver linings, isn't it, of this time? It is. Because you, you don't want to... You, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I do not want to dishonour anyone else's experience and go, you know, well, there are beautiful things. But there are some... The natural world, there's no doubt the natural world is, is just in celebration of what's going on yes. at the moment. I mean, the bird life around us, I've never heard it. It's almost like they start the dawn chorus at four in the morning. They have, it's almost like they're rejoicing that things have slowed down. <laughs> it's funny. It's like the arc of how I feel and the things that I feel in my life. So when you're a student and when you're a teenager, you have, you're probably your most revolutionary in terms of like, fuck this. Mm. Why are we doing, you know, I think the great thing about teenagers are and the great thing about students are, is they've got we at that age you've got such a you're, you you've got such a you got you're so sensitive to the bullshit and I think that's why 
you know, I'm the, I'm the parent of two teenage children. Mm. We're parents. And one thing I always say that t- teenagers, teenagers and young people can sniff inauthenticity. Yes. Yeah. You can just fucking sniff it. You, you see it on the politicians, on, 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 this, on the TV screen. Mm. You meet people in, in adverted commas in authority. You see it in the media. You meet people in the media and you're like, what the... Yeah, so, so you have that. And, and then as you get older, I'm, I'm lucky because, you know, I've been in a band, so you kind of kind of hold on to that for a while. But then what happens is, you know, you have a family and a kids and you, get, you sort of get sucked into the system in a way. And, you know, that, that, that you, you get your debt because you buy your house and you get your debt. So, mm. you know, you, you stop questioning the system in a way. And I, I'm never like I've stopped, but... In the last 10 years, I feel more like my 17-year-old self. Mm-hmm. I've come a U-turn because, you know, I'm, I'm, again, very fortunate. I studied economics and politics at university. Mm-hmm. So I have an understanding of the system. And not only through academics, I've continued to read about it. I've, I've read about it. And the older that I get... In fact, I'm more... I'm like this system... And this is what I've been saying for like the last eight, 10 years been going around and whoever would listen to me <laughs> I'd rant on about like this system does not work it work, doesn't work for the planet mm. and the climate crisis is living proof of that it doesn't work for the flora and fauna of this planet and it doesn't work for 98% of humanity, the weird thing is like it should work for someone like myself who's you know been the recipient of, incredibly, of incredible good fortune but for me that's not enough because you know I, yeah, th- this system has to change. No, it doesn't. It, it's not really. It doesn't work for anyone. No, I, I mean, one of the things you said that really resonated with me was talking about how when you're a teenager or when you're a, when you're a student, when you're you know at that part of your life, in a way, you're at your most. Your bullshit detector is at its most sensitive, and it just made me yeah. think about. So I went on the anti-Iraq war march in two thousand three. I think there was something that I felt there. It was probably partly to do with it being the start of, you know, the new millennium. And there was this sort of fin de siècle optimism about the future. But I, I very, very quickly after that felt, I think, a bit hopeless. And I think a lot of people in my generation felt actually incredibly depoliticized by the outcome of the Stop the War coalition movement because I felt that there was... If that many people aren't listened to, then what's the point? What's the point in, in taking any interest at all in politics? And um, it's only really been in the last four or five years with figures like Bernie Sanders, with the Corbyns, that I think a lot of younger people and possibly older people as well actually feel like their opinion and their voice matters again. We were on that march as well, and I didn't go on another march until last year with the Extinction Rebellion. And I think that was a huge moment. It it sort of broke the back of a lot of people's spirits, the way that Blair didn't listen to people, the arrogance of him and his inner sanctum of the deal that they made with George W. And it's almost like everybody knew on that march we had a sense of, A, what it was about, i.e., you know, political regional dominance from an American hawkish government that wanted 
the oil in that region. Yes. And this sort of vain British Prime Minister who wanted a part on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I'm the same. It completely depoliticized me. And, and I, I, I was like, what's the fucking point? Yeah. So you'd been quite a lot younger than me. So that's 2003. I was 35, yeah. you know, and I've been going on uh, May Day rallies and stuff like that and, and make trade fair. And I was just like, what's the fucking point? What is the point of using this energy? And what's interesting is I've come back and the Extinction Rebellion were really, I really found them powerful. And I, and I get, you know, when, when Corbyn came on the scene, first of all, I thought it was a breath of fresh air in the Labour Party. Mm. And obviously, you know, I like Bernie as well. From where you know, because there's Corbyn, I have a bit of a problem with in terms of a lot of the people around him. He was my constituency MP, and actually met him on the came Dorset, and I really liked him. But I think the whole anti-Semitic thing yes. was just disgraceful. Absolutely. And you know, I've got Jewish blood in me. I've got lots of stuff. My wife's family Jewish, mm-hmm. and the way that they felt really threatened for the first time and, they, and, and these fears weren't allayed you know they weren't appeased and I like Bernie my problem with these are they're old white guys sure, sure. they come from a different era and I think I like people like Jess Phillips we need more people who are female younger your generation mm-hmm. who aren't harking back I think the problem with Bernie and Jeremy Corbyn and his like, they, they keep on referencing it back to almost like this class struggle thing of the 80s. And that was valid then, but it's not valid now. There's a part of it that's valid that all people, you know, that we, we need to look after everyone. Yes. But the trouble is, and this also goes back to one of the things I've referenced uh, or reframed my thinking about activism and stuff like that. Mm. Everything's referenced in terms of a struggle. There's one certainty I've realized in life. If you reference your life like that, if you say it's going to be a struggle, it will be a struggle. There is such thing as self-fulfilling prophecy. I really believe that. You have to, we have to be so careful in the way that we use our words and the way that we, we move forward and the way we, we, we act. Everything that I've been on and this, this fight and, you know, anti this, anti that, it's all happened. And I started reading about this and it was really interesting and, there's a whole movement, there's a, lot, there's a thinking out there that says, and I now subscribe to it, is that if you become anti-something, if you're anti-war, you're giving war an energy. So the outcome of that, do you know what I mean? And yes. it's like a mass, it's like conscious thing. It can happen, it's more likely to happen. Mother Teresa said a, a very simple but a profoundly important thing. She said... I will not go on any anti-war march, Mm. but I will go on every pro-peace march. Mm. And that is the big difference. Because you see, if you define yourself as anti-that movement, you alienate a whole load of people and then you just get a fight. But if you say, this is what I want and this is the world that I want and this is the kind of thing that I want, you're allowing the other side to change their mind. And it's a far more positive and it's a far stronger way. And that for me was why... That was the first time I, I went back into activism and with Extinction Rebellion because I went to see some of them. You know, of course, there are a few renegades in any movement like that. You know, activism is a messy thing, but at the heart of what Extinction Rebellion do, it's very positive. It's a different kind of energy. It's not 
it's not saying fuck this, fuck that, which is a very 80s thing. It's an old actor. It's like, this is what we want. And this is, and that's what we're dreaming about. Come join the journey. And, and that for me is the, 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 the key thing about activism nowadays. You know the kind of world that you want to be in and that's what you aim at and that's what your energy is aimed at doing. Absolutely. I mean, that really resonates with me on so many levels. And I think part of this age that we're living in, this kind of information age, one of the most problematic things, I think, for a lot of people is our relationship with social media. I think we've become very good at commenting on things. And I think Twitter is is hugely responsible for this. You know, there's a lot of, I think, toxicity that's come with that. We've become very good at shouting. We've been very good at uh, imposing our opinion on people. We've become less good at listening. This is something that we've sort of explored with, with our music a little bit on our new album as well. We've got a song called Screwdriver and the refrain of the song is fight them with love. And really what that message came from was this idea of listening to both sides. Because I've, I've become quite active in protest again for the first time since I was a student. And I think one of the things that draws me to that energy, to that environment, is it's somewhere where you can walk side by side with people from completely different backgrounds to you, with completely different life experiences. And you've got a chance to listen to their stories and to hear how they view the world and I think that's something that we've got to do. And in this age of information being bombarded with, you know, media narratives from every angle, I think we've all got to educate ourselves by exploring as diverse sources of media as possible and by listening to one another. And I think that, that feels like a very important part of our educational process at this point in time. Yeah, and it all starts, you're right, Blaine, it all starts with listening with one another. I think back to the whole Brexit thing in the last four years ago, I just think it was just the worst kind of people drawing up battle lines and, and, and people on both sides. And, and it was a very, very, very complex thing. It should never come about, but it's a very complex thing. And both sides have very valid points. Yes. You know, both sides of the argument have when you go in there. And, and I could go into that, having been a politics student, studied the EU. Mm. I could tell you about the common agricultural policy, which is hugely flawed. Mm. You know, I could tell you a lot of stuff about the, the running of, and as many people do, about the, the EU that doesn't work. But I could, you know, it was, and it, it, what was awful about it was that there were intelligent people being reduced to, you know, being drawing up the battle lines. Yeah. And you have to start with listening to people. You have to. Because people have fears, and 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 that's the that's the first place that you have to start. So, I mean, I've done I've got a Twitter account because of the album, but Twitter struck me as being a load of it seemed to be again very male, very toxic. People shouting, people judging one another. It's like why would you? And it brings out the worst in people. It does. Why would you? Why would you do that shit? Instagram I quite like because it's it's a bit gentler and it's a bit kind of. I mean, obviously, there's a narcissistic element to Instagram that I really, like the whole selfie phenomenon. I said, I can't do a selfie myself. <laughs> that just seems ridiculous. Yeah. I, I've got over that now. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it's like, I agree. And, and I think it's what I do think is really important. Um, and it's a lesson I learned quite a few years ago. When I, you know, I struggled with depression for a lot, uh, quite a lot of my life. And I'm very lucky because I don't, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm out of it now and I've, 
it's, it was a long journey to get out of it and, and, and making my own journey really, not, not I, I knew I had to do it myself, but one of the things I learned quite early on was being a good gatekeeper. Yeah. And that means being quite disciplined in what you let into your life, what you read, all that stuff. Mm. You know, I was an avid newspaper reader yeah. and having studied politics and economics, I wouldn't just read The Guardian. I'd be interested to see what the Daily Telegraph said because that's the other poll. Mm. You know, I, I learned at college that, you know, the biggest lesson that I learned at university is what's the bias of your source? The, the stuff that you're reading, where does it come from? What does the author say? So Telegraph, it's right, the left. The Guardian's more centre, centre-left, if you like, tradition. So I, re- but what I realised reading all this this news is basically the news is pretty shit. Yeah, it's quite depressing, and it's often about how people are pretty pretty brutal to one another, and and and, and people are ostracised in society, and all this stuff. And I realised it was affecting me so much. So what I tried to do is I wouldn't read it daily. I'd kind of read it weekly. And that made a big difference. But I think the same thing is with social media. You have to be... The, the problem is, it's on this thing, the phone. Mm. And we all know how addictive these fucking yeah. phones are. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to it as well. I, I, you know, I can see... They are so fucking addictive. And, you know, you try... We all try... I mean, I, I was lucky. I, I had two years out... or oh, a year out of it when we were living in Brazil. I didn't... You know, it was like going cold turkey off a phone. <laughs> And it's not good for us. It's not good. And because what the, the trouble is that, you know, all this stuff is addictive. And, and, and the problem is, you know, we're not encouraged to, to be discerning uh, in society. We're not encouraged to actually look after ourselves and our mental health. What we're, the most important thing in our current system is for us to be avid consumers. That's the most important thing. And that's consumption of social media, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's not about... So you have to be, in order to get yourself in a, a good state, you have to be incredible. You have to be almost zen in your, in your kind of discipline. Self-discipline. Yeah. yeah, it's self-discipline. It's like so important. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when I see myself like, you know, like on the, on the, going on Instagram or something or checking, I have to, be, you know, for instance, in the morning, like I'm here, I get up and I'm, I meditate in the morning, which is great for me. I've been doing it for about 18 years. And then I'll go and sit outside and I'll have a cup of tea. Yeah. And the rest of it is, I should be looking at, I hear all this bird life, I should be looking at all these trees mm-hmm. and the nature, and I do, and I love it. But also, it's like that feeling, I've got to pick up my phone, I've got to check my emails. Do you know what I mean? It's that, that thing. And that is not healthy because it is a massive addiction and it, it also it stops you being a good gatekeeper because it's suddenly it's like all that stuff's in. And, and I, I, it's, it's definitely something I struggle with. Is this a nefarious thing? Are we, is, there a, is there a dark side to this addiction that we have to social media and is this a deliberate thing what we really need as a species is for the internet to go down for fucking a year (laughs) and that would be can you imagine that would be you know i'm I'm probably speaking really out of turn here and people are probably saying oh people will die and stuff like that but you know what there's a part of me that and i don't want people to die but there's a that would be truly revolutionary if 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 people in the future found themselves having to unplug, you know, 
Do you know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. And, it, and it's in a way, it's very linked to, I think, what we're going through now with coronavirus, because a lot of these other systems which have crumbled, um, it's, it's thanks to that which has kind of offered us a glimpse at what really matters. But then at the same time, because we're all having to spend so much time indoors and we're all feeling very, I suppose, we're all missing connection, we're missing physical contact, a lot of these things which we're so used to, social media becomes our way of connecting with the outside world. Yeah. Which, which, is, really, which is really difficult. And, um, you know, and it's good. And actually, do you know what I mean? I mean, this from the technology is amazing. I think, you know, I didn't know about Zoom beforehand, but... You know, I'm Zooming, I'm FaceTiming my dad every day and I'm really thankful of that, mm. that technology because it can be, you know, we all know technology used in the right way is brilliant. It moves us forward. And I just said it's, that, it's the, the nefarious part, it's the bit that, you know, technology, you know, it's all about, what, what's it, that thing I read about Zuckerberg saying he, he left every meeting shouting domination domination supposedly they've talked there was a thing about talking about instagram and the, the rise of instagram and it's that kind of patriarchal domination that you know and market share and, and power and money thing that is just just ruins it and is used for nefarious means it should be a force for good so we haven't you know as a species we haven't worked that thing out and maybe the structure of our you know our world economy and the way we structure life well, not, it, we know that it facilitates that kind of behaviour. Mm. I always think, like, you know, we've got this idea, and I've certainly grown up in this era when people think that we were so advanced, we're such an advanced civilization, and, you know, look at all the amazing... And there are amazing things we do, but I also think... I think we're like, you know, we're like 15-year-olds, and let's not put down 15-year-old teenagers, because I've got 15-year-olds who think they know everything. Yeah. But we've got so much more to learn. And people, we will look back as a species in 500 years and go, oh my God, they were really, <laughs> they were quite adolescent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi there. Yeah, it's me interrupting me again. I just wanted to have a quick word in your ear to tell you about an amazing charity called Attitude Is Everything, which I'm a proud patron of. Attitude Is Everything are a grassroots organisation supported by the Arts Council who work with the music industry to improve access to gigs and festivals for deaf and disabled audiences. It's a cause that means a lot to me and Attitude were meant to be celebrating their 20th anniversary this year. But because of the pandemic and, well, there being no gigs, they've partnered instead with the people at Good Night Out campaign to make a series of films called Good Attitudes discussing how to make nightlife safer for deaf and disabled disabled women and members of the non-binary community. Here are some of their guests speaking about past experiences. It would be like the very start of the night out if the security are really unfriendly. Um, if they don't listen, if you say that you can't stand, for example, for a long time and you need to go in sooner and that you have to kind of stand in the queue and it's like you might have disability problems, pain. The vast majority of it for me circles around being singled out, um, which is something I and other disabled people don't want where, for example, it's been blamed on me being too drunk or on drugs based on things that are actually linked to symptoms with my disabilities. Arrival at a club uh, can usually lead to quite annoying experiences of being denied entry, um, usually just because I use a wheelchair. I, I think the, the key thing is, is like just believe disabled people. If they tell you they're disabled, believe them. 
That was an extract from a film made by Attitude Is Everything and Good Night Out campaign to discuss how to make nightlife safer for deaf and disabled women and members of the non-binary community. Links in the show notes to find out more. Now let's go back to Ed O'Brien. I mean, you were, t- you were talking a few minutes ago about that kind of period, the beginning of the 2000s, when you were in the Kid A amnesiac phase and, you know, using less traditional guitar sounds. Do you think that was quite an important step in terms of you kind of moving out, out of your comfort zone and starting to kind of explore um, a new way of looking at the guitar? It was good because it, it, it got me really sort of scratching my head going, well, what can I do? What can I, how can I do something really different? OK Computer, I was saying to someone the other day, doing an interview, I said, I was listening to the two albums that I was listening to that really formed a lot of what I sonically contributed to OK Computer were Pet Sounds and What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. I never really knew those wow. records. And, and so... They That's really, really unexpected. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sure it is, but to me, it's like, it's perfect, it's, it's logical, and I guess it's that thing of aiming for sounds, and I wasn't aiming for guitar sounds on, I was aiming for an atmosphere or, you know, or aiming at a glockenspiel or something, or chimey, or um, just to feel, I didn't know enough, when I heard pet sounds, I didn't know enough about the instruments there that were being used, or the instruments in combination to know how they got that sound it was just like oh i like that sound that sounds a bit like that and so with with a capo my guitars that i had rickenbacker and a strat and the few pedals delay pedals and the amps you know i was trying to emulate a lot of those sounds Mm -hmm. and so that was a push on from before and then you know when tom sort of you know he was like going i'm not listening to guitar music you know i'm not listening to you know I think him and Johnny were listening to Bitches Brew, Miles Davis. When he arrived Kid A, he was listening to Otekra, he was listening to Boards of Canada, he was listening to Aphex Twin. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the jolt that was needed within the band to move it on again. And, you know, I remember when we went in to do Kid A, I was really into Scott Walker. Yeah. I was hoping that we might make a record like we had a song called How to Disappear and I thought that that could be that was the first one because we'd rehearsed that up um, on tour OK Computer and we were playing that in sound checks and stuff in 98 Mm. and I was listening to a lot of Scott Walker and particularly Scott Ford so I thought oh we'll make this kind of really beautiful you know we'll get lots of strings maybe we could do strings and you know, maybe you could play Spanish guitars and stuff like that. And, and then Tom's kind of like, <laughs> right. you know, he's got, and it was brilliant because yeah. it was, it was challenging yeah. and that's what you need. And that's where you grow. And that, that, that place that you go to, uh, was, was, was really, really important. And, he, and it wasn't like he challenged all of us. He challenged Nigel. You know, I remember I hadn't really heard Aphex Twin. I hadn't heard Boards of Canada. And it was kind of like, ah, oh, that, this is, you know, this is great, this is really good. And it was also accompanied by, a l- I mean, it wasn't the happiest phase of the band, it was, it was the perfect soundtrack and a lot of dope smoking <laughs> as well. So everything was, you know, and it was actually, I mean, it wasn't a great time personally, I was the most depressed I'd been, but there was something about that music that, that really, it came out of this quite, it was a dark period. It, it felt like a very dark period, but actually to be making 
kind of the, the first tentative steps at electron, something electronic and something different, that was the right time to be making at it, yeah. making it for us. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Well, just before I leave you to, to, to uh, the rest of your day, can I ask you just one last question, which I've been asking everyone I've, I've spoken to on the podcast, which is what are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for? It's really, I mean, it's very simple. It's, it's, it's environmental. It's, it's our planet. It's, it's at the floor and floor of this planet and it's humanity. And those are the three things. Yeah. And that's the thing that I kind of say in my meditation every day. It's kind of like, it's almost like a prayer. It's kind of like asking that this be a moment where humanity treats the planet with love, kindness, respect, treats all its flora, fauna with love, kindness, respect, and treats one another. And then we get that, only small stuff. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> they're biggies, they're three Just biggies. Just small yeah. stuff. <laughs> well, Ed, yeah, thank you so much for your time. And um, I can't wait to catch a show when, when you know, we come out of this, this incredible yeah, well, strange likewise. time. And, um, yeah. Likewise, I want to I wanna kind of catch a show. And actually, Will invited me. I don't know if you still have your, your studio in, in Stoke Newton. He said he, he said you've got to come down sometime. Well, that sometime. that studio is no more, but we've now got the place in um in Clerkenwell where where I am now. So, anytime Brilliant. you're welcome to come down and and uh, hang out. All right, Blaine. Thank you so much, and good luck. I really enjoyed it, and good luck with your record, and good luck with you know coming out of it and w- w- whatever artistically follows. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Ed. All right. Okay. See you on the road. Take care. Cheers. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode five of Things Worth Fighting For and also to both Billy Bragg and Ed O'Brien for sharing their inspiring words with me. Ed's brilliant debut solo album, Earth, is out now, as is Billy's critically acclaimed new book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, a pocket-sized exploration of personal liberty and the responsibilities of citizenship. Links to both of these, as well as loads of other resources and videos, are in the show notes. We'll be back very soon with more conversations and a whole cast of inspiring people, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and give us a lovely little rating if you enjoyed the show. It's really useful in helping others discover us and join in these conversations. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. And special thanks to Kate Jones at UROC for all her amazing help and coordination skills. And now, to play you out, we're going to listen to Campfire Song from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. See you next time. Once we heard a line and we thought it fair Looking the ads and you would find it there Sleeping at night wrapped up in our beds Safe from the world so we wouldn't be scared
choosing different sides Hold on to what's inside Onto a feeling that you can't deny Somewhere in your eyes There is a spirit that will never die You gotta hold on Yeah, you gotta try Onto a feeling that you can't deny Hold on Yeah, you gotta fight And take it with you till the day you die Twenty years of education and still No one taught us how to love ourselves until We danced in the corner Someone you love too much Hold on to what's inside Onto a feeling that you can't deny Somewhere in your eyes There is a spirit that will never die Hold on, yeah you gotta try Onto a feeling that you can't deny Hold on, yeah you gotta fight Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.